Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club, and this is your show. The difficult week is done with, and it was win, lose and draw for City over the course of those three eye-watering fixtures. While the results might not have been perfect, the performances were all pretty damn good, so surely that bodes well for the remainder of the season. Welcome to today's Blue Moon podcast, where we'll be reflecting on the 2 all draw at Anfield, now that the dust has settled. It's left City two points off the top of the table going into this weekend's international break, but crucially, Pep Guardiola has already navigated Spurs, Leicester, Chelsea and Liverpool away from home, with United also to come before. For Christmas. Also on this week's show, we'll hear from the former City defender Kevin Bond, and we'll take a look at what happened behind the scenes at Main Road when his father, John Bond, got the manager's job back in the early 1980s. I'm David Mooney, and for this week's show, I'm joined by Goal.com's Jonathan Smith. Hello. And the Athletic City correspondent, Sam Lee. Hello. So, um, Sam, nice to, nice to speak to you again on a different podcast this week. Um, we're going to start with uh, the Anfield game. Now, me and you, we've talked about this uh, already on uh, the Why Always Us podcast. Um, but as I said earlier, the, the start, seven points from four tricky away games, um, that's a good position to be in for City, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is. I, City and Chelsea have had similar away games. I, I think Chelsea haven't played Leicester, which City have. Um but yeah, it is a good start. And you look, I looked at the table at the end of that Liverpool game just to see where everything was. And it was, oh, Chelsea are top by two points, but two points is nothing. And also, I think City's performance there maybe took the, sh- the sheen off them a little bit uh, in terms of how formidable they're going to be. Although that probably doesn't impact on, on how well equipped they are to beat the rest of the teams in the division. So Chelsea will still be strong. But yeah, going into it, into this international break, it, it did go pretty well these, these last few games. And yeah, the start of the season overall. Although you could pick faults in the Tottenham game, but you know it's early in the season, and particularly the Southampton game, teams are going to drop points. Um, it's going to be a really interesting title race, um, but City are still banging it. And after that start, considering all the players they had at the Euros in, in South America, I don't, I don't think you can complain too much. Yeah, John, the other side of it is as well, like like Sam says there, two points off the top going into the international break. It's it's maybe better than was expected. Um, but also, if there, if you look at the, the teams that are in and around City and the teams that City have played, if there's one team that, that could go on a winning run of 15, 16, 17, 18 games, you'd back it to be City with the performances right now, wouldn't you? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, looking back on, on sort of the last week, I, I'd say it was maybe as, as impressive a week of performances as, as we've seen in Pep's time to go to Chelsea, to go to PSG and to go to Liverpool and be the be- better side on each occasion. Um, it's just incredible, really. And obviously, the the, dis- the biggest disappointment is they haven't won all three games. Um, but like you say, you know, had they have lost at uh, Chelsea and Liverpool, you know, that table looks pretty, you know, it looks a lot different. I think there'd be something like nine points behind Chelsea. Um, and uh, people were probably talking in this international break about City being at the title race, or you know, one of those can they come back? Um, yeah, and, and 
like you say, you, they've had those a very difficult start in terms of away games, and they're very much in the thick of it. But also on the back of it, play some really impressive performances, um, and, and maybe we've moved slightly away from the talk about strikers. Can they do it without a striker? Um, you know, maybe not, not sure we have. <laughs> we've moved away a little bit in terms of yes, they can do it. Yeah, we've kind of got an answer to that. Yes, they can do it. Yeah, you could, there's still a debate of whether they'd be even stronger with a striker or not. But that, that's going to go yeah, on. Until, yeah, that's going to go on until they assign someone, isn't it? So. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other side of it, Sam, you look at that that mini table between City, Liverpool, and Chelsea so far. They've all played each other once now. Um, City have got four points from those games. Liverpool two, Chelsea one, and and like if this season comes down to it, it's good that they're beating their rivals or they're they're, they're taking advantage of their rivals, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's just the mentality in those big games. Although uh, I'm, I'm thinking if we're talking about going into a season after winning trophies and maybe they're going to be complacent and all this kind of stuff, it's it's good that they're capable of putting in such high level performances. Although maybe it's easier to find the motivation for those games, and the real quiz, as it were, will be you know Burnley at home after the international break and Southampton Brighton away in particular. And yeah, Southampton away. Uh, sorry, Southampton at home, as we've already seen. So that's an interesting one. But yeah, in terms of that, yeah, the way they approach those big games, maybe we can't definitively say that's going to be. Well, it's going to mean that the Premier League is going to be fine, but maybe it means that it bodes well for the Champions League. And now, irony being they actually lost in the Champions League, but I think if you play like that and make the tweaks, you know, Guardiola said there was a few differences from the PSG game compared to the Chelsea game because, you know, the first actions, the first pressing, it wasn't the same without um, Jesus and Foden. Now, you think you've put Jesus and Foden in, or whoever's playing well at that time, let's say when a, a big Champions League knockout game comes along, and City put in a performance like they did at Chelsea and Liverpool, then they are going to have a hell of a chance. But then, you know, as John kind of mentioned and, and you mentioned, it'll probably it'll come down to putting chances in the back of the net um, yeah. and the striker debate. But my, by then, we'll probably be saying if it is still a debate, we'll probably be saying, "What's wrong with the players they have got? Why can't they score?" And I think that's a valid <laughs> point. Yeah, um, and that that's going to go round and round in circles. Uh, John, the, there's there's a long way to go, obviously. Still, um, Guardiola was asked pre pre Liverpool about the the situation in the table, and he says, "Look, I don't really care what the table looks like right now. It's you know, it's, uh, you don't start paying attention till till 10, 10, 10, 12 games in. Um, so there is still a long way to go." But at least the one thing, I mean, you, you touched on it there, the displays are becoming very consistent right now. You take the Southampton game out and actually City have, have had a run of, of, of games where they've played really, really well. Yeah, and he looked incredibly happy as well uh, on the back of, you know, and post-match after Liverpool on the back of what was, you know, incredibly difficult week. He looked very happy with how it had gone. Uh, yeah, like we said, you know, points-wise, it, it could have been a lot better. Uh, performance-wise, I don't. I, I don't think you can expect anything more. Um, you know, they've just been superb throughout. The 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 hunger, the desire, um, and the skill is all there. And you can't ask for any more than that. PSG in, in another another day could have gone a different way. Um, you know, a little bit of luck in the crossbar twice, things like that. But um, you know, he often talks about small margins, and, and that's what, what it comes down to. Um, but uh, you know, the PSG one was if you were going to lose one, that was the one you would choose. So, yeah, performance-wise, it's it's been just absolutely superb. 
Yeah, well, let's uh, let's focus on the game at Anfield, and the the, the point I'm going to start with is uh, the contentious decisions in the game, because um, obviously a lot of fans were not happy that uh, James Milner didn't seize marching orders at uh, one or maybe two points in the game. Um, I'm not going to ask you to go through those decisions because I've been speaking to uh, ESPN's Dale Johnson to explain uh, what the VAR has and hasn't given. Here's what he said: A yellow card is treated as a as all yellow cards are treated as all yellow cards, basically. Um, and there is an issue if you start looking at second yellow cards. Because the problem is, if you're doing that, then every player on a yellow card that makes a challenge, that then becomes a re- reviewable second yellow card. And you could end up having just loads and loads of reviews about each tackle these players make. And obviously in games where there are a high number of yellow cards, that's going to include uh, um, increase the number of reviews you need to have. Um, and then the other side to that is if you have a review for a second yellow card against James Milner, and what actually happens is the first yellow card turned out to be an error. They can't change that. So you might end up having James Milner sent off for a review of a second yellow card when he should never have reviewed, uh, received the first one. So the thinking is, is that it's just a bit too messy and a bit too involved and review uh, involve far too many reviews if you do the second yellow. I mean, obviously, when we have these incidents like James Milner and there'll be several others across the season in, in all leagues, it always looks a bit, well... This it's a red card, so why can't we look at it? But it's um, like I explained, it's a lot. It's deeper than that. It's about the frequency and how common yellow cards are, and how if you don't look at them all, then you can cause errors in, uh, inadvertently. Yeah, could the could the VAR have advised Paul Tierney to that 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 maybe it was James Milner if if he maybe thought that Jordan Henderson had made that challenge, or is it just a no go completely? Well, he gave the I think he did the, the foul against Henderson. Um, and that's why he didn't book Milner. There's nothing to stop him booking Milner if he thinks Milner has made a reckless challenge uh, after the ball stopped. He can still do that if he wants. It's a rarity, but it can still happen. Um, the only way that VAR could have got involved in the way you describe is if it was mistaken identity. But because the foul against um, the, fact, the, the original foul by Henderson it could still be judged as the actual foul, then that can't be seen as a mistaken identity because... He hasn't booked a player for start off, and the foul could still be valid. Yeah. Now let's uh, let's look at the uh, other incident involving uh, James Milder. This one on on Phil Foden, right before he'd even received his first yellow card in this game. Um, just explain to me why the VAR ended up giving nothing in that. Yeah. So this is a this is a, this is a strange one. It could have gone either way, really. And I think that in certain other leagues, which are um, implementing VAR more strictly, then it could have resulted in a different outcome. Um, but what it wasn't, it wasn't a penalty for sure because the initial contact which caused the foul and caused Foden to, to trip over, that was caused by, that was caused just outside the area. It was clearly outside the area. So there's no way that VAR could initiate a penalty review. Now, that's one point. The second point is a possible red card for denying an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. Now, what I believe the VAR decided here was because the contact was so slight, it wasn't the clear and obvious error not to give the uh, the free kick and thus not to have a red card review for denying of uh, goals got opportunity. Now, there is a chance the VAR may not have felt it was a red card because Matip was coming over, but I think that's unlikely. So I think the issue here is they've tried to not get too involved, but this is a very, very similar challenge to the one by Bernardo, Bernardo Silva against Norwich, which led to Ferran Torres' goal being disallowed. So if you're disallowing a goal because of minor contact, how can you then not say we will look at a red card for minor contact? 
And this minor contact was very similar to the red card that David Louise received um, at Wolves last season. And also the penalty which Paul Pogba won against Aston Villa. Now, granted, they were both decisions made on the pitch. But at the same time, I think in the position Foden was, I still think it was a very valid red card review. And the fact that a player didn't mean to trip up his opponent doesn't really change the fact that you can make a foul challenge that way. Yeah, so uh, I, mean, I think ultimately uh, Milner is uh, is best described. I mean, you described it as uh, lucky to avoid a red on two occasions. So we can say that yeah. uh, that, that maybe Milner's been a lucky boy this weekend. I, I think that in, in different circumstances and different VAR may have looked at that uh, the, the first incident, uh, the penalty penalty slash red card incident, very differently. Because this is the thing with all these games: there are twenty three referees as, as, acting as a VAR, and they will all have a different subjective view of each incident. They'll all have their, although they've got guidelines, they'll all have their own personal ideas of how they are implementing VAR, which is why you will never get total consistency with these decisions. You can try and get consistency in how you're going to um, intervene and how you're going to have full reviews, but at the end of the day, you're still going to have these 23 referees that all are looking at a different incident in their own way. Um, and it's just the same with many incidents. You can put referees in a, in a room and ask them to discuss tackle A or uh, challenge B. And you'll probably, a lot of the time, you will not get universal agreement amongst referees. And that's why, unfortunately, we will, we will never get that consistency which people think we should get from VAR. Please give us your backing. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. That was ESPN's Dale Johnson. Uh, John, was Milner lucky? Yeah, I mean, Dale's really good on these things he knows exactly what's going on um so i think he explained it really well um so i think that yeah the, the va i can see why people might want wanted the var to get involved because it, it should have been sent off um but i think ultimately it comes down to the fact that the referee just bottled the decision the match was probably just a bit too big for him um it's the first time i can remember him refereeing a, a match of this magnitude and he, and he just couldn't pull a trigger when it when he needed to, which was to give. You know, he, I think he should have given a penalty to uh, for Milner on Foden, and then maybe VAR would have got involved and said it was outside the box. I don't think he's made that decision. I, I think he's made that decision because he's decided not to give a penalty and, and, and has bottled that decision. And then and the same with the the second yellow card. I mean, it was just it's just clear, clear and obvious, um, and. Yeah, he just decided he couldn't do it. Yeah, Sam, does it? If Milner's sent off, it's one-one. Does he? Does that change the outcome of the game at that point? Good question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the fact that yeah, okay, so it was one-all, and City had obviously bounced back from going the goal down in the first place, which isn't necessarily a given at Anfield, is it? Um, so yeah, I think it probably probably would have been City dictating the game as they did more so in the first half. I would imagine because you know when Klopp did that interview afterwards when he explained how they sat back and um, they let City play and then the midfield dropped back and and that gave them even more space. You know, if you have got ten men, most likely you're going to do the same thing. So most likely the last what twenty twenty five minutes would have been city as pressure. The, the first half finished. So yeah, it would have been city pressure and yeah, I mean, but then it comes down to would they have scored. And ultimately, the the goal they did score for for two two was more of a transition, really. And in fact, so was the 
so was so was Foden's. So maybe it wouldn't have suited City at all. But they they would have certainly had more more of the ball and probably more chances. Yeah, for sure. And it, I mean, yeah, definitely, definitely a second yellow, wasn't it? That that foul. It, no wonder Guardiola went mad. I know <laughs> that it, it's it's comical, isn't it? Like, to see him to see him going so mad as that. But like, no wonder he did. And the thing is, obviously, in his head, he was probably thinking, "Oh, we've had you know," because he was sure in that Champions League game that they should have had a penalty on Sterling. Um, there was obviously the famous game a couple of years ago when Liverpool won three one, and he he was doing that twice, twice, you know, with his two fingers in the air because I think it was the Trent Alexander Arnold handball in the first yeah. half, and there was yeah. something else in the second. I can't remember, but he's obviously thinking every time we come here, we're getting absolutely stitched up, and that Milner one, even though you know it wasn't as clear as a penalty, it wasn't as like decisive as a penalty. It was, I think, that was the most obvious one. And he just didn't get it. So I can see why he went mad. I just can't believe he didn't get booked sooner. And I can't believe he didn't actually get sent off. Well, I, I wondered if he was trying to get himself sent off so that afterwards he could say, look, he sent me off. To make a point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 possibly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would have. I'd have gone for it. Yeah. Um, the, the other side of it, John, is in his post-match uh, interview, Guardiola said um, that uh, Anfield, Old Trafford, these decisions don't happen. Um, is he right? Yeah. Uh, I think in some some ways he is. Yeah, um, you know it's 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 very intimidating place, and you know I do have sympathy for the referees because he must feel like the loneliest person in the whole stadium because fifty five thousand eyes are on you plus you know hundreds of millions of people on TV around the world. <laughs> it's your decision, so the easiest thing is just to not give it. And yeah, I just. I think, I mean, it's, it sounds a bit like um, the agenda here, doesn't it? But I just think uh, I, I, it's always been the way, hasn't it? Difficult stadiums. Um, you know, I, I, to some extent, I think also to sort of balance that out, I think maybe lower table clubs. Yeah, you'll have Sean the same thing about the Etihad, won't you? <laughs> well, exactly. I think, I think, if they get one attack and it's a dodgy challenge, maybe the referee errs on the side of, look, if I cost City a point here, I'm, I'm all over match today. I'm, I'm sure that goes through referees' heads. I think Southampton yeah. might have a, a few words about decisions at the Etihad. Um, but Well, uh, I mean, he did, he did give it. And then, then, I mean, that was the bizarre thing about that was that VAR overturned it. I, I didn't think it was a pen, but I, certainly didn't think it you know from everything we've seen overturned decisions like that never get overturned so I thought that was very odd the whole the whole thing was odd the red card everything Today, there are lots of small business owners who are busier than ever. Time spent searching for and interviewing candidates can take time away from managing and growing a business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get to the candidates worth interviewing faster, and it's free as well. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs and reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK. You can focus on the skills and experience that you need in candidates, and you can use screening questions to make sure your role is seen by the people most qualified for it. And the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs can quickly filter and prioritise who you'd like to interview and hire. 
LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster, and you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash blue. Again, that's linkedin.com slash blue, B-L-U-E, to post a job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, let's let's talk about the positives from uh, City Anfield instead of moaning about the referee, because that's not what I like to do on this show. <laughs> um, uh, Sam, Phil Foden, um, first off, joint Man of the Match winner. Never seen that before. Um, yeah. Goal and assist for Foden. Um, what, pretty, with Bernardo Silva? Uh, no, no, with Mo Salah. Um, so not not only not only two players win man of the match, but they're two opposing players. The wrong ones, sides. yeah, yeah. Well, the um, wrong ones. yeah. yeah. Uh, so never seen that before. Obviously, goal and assist for Foden. Um, he's flying at the minute, isn't he? Uh, he's just always flying, isn't he? I mean, to be fair, I've at the end of last season, I was like, oh, he's gonna he's gonna have a great game in the Champions League final. He's gonna score the best goal ever scored at some point soon. It would probably be the Champions League final. And I was thinking, you know, semi-finals against PSG. He missed. He played really well, but missed a couple of good chances. And I'm trying not to build him up too much because I think he's so good. I'm I'm all, but I'm all, I'm already trying to take him next level. But yeah, he was he was very good at Anfield. Like I was speaking to so Melissa Reddy, who people might know as the well, she's not a Liverpool correspondent, but she certainly covers Liverpool. Works for the Independent now. And she was asking me after the game, she's like, oh, what are you writing about? Uh, she was like, are you doing something on the game and another focus? She was like, are you going to go You're going to go big on Foden? And I was like, well, I'm not actually. And I kind of figured, I think for people who watch City regularly, kind of just take it for granted a bit. Yeah, so you know in terms get, of, I was, I was going to say it was a mature performance and another really big performance because, you know, all the talk about going back to Anfield, there's fans in there this time. Like it's it's a ground where you know Sterling Sterling player has played well there recently um, with fans and without, but for years it was always the narrative that he struggled going back to Anfield. I know Wayne Rooney never really did well at Anfield. He scored once there very early on at United and never played well there. And that is one of those things that can be attached to a, a big player. But Foden just it's not an issue for him really. Um, okay, granted he's not getting the same kind of scrutiny as those two players, but it's a difficult place to go against a very good team. And he shone and he did really well in the first half. He missed a couple of, well, one chance in particular from that Bernardo dribble, which was such a shame because that would have been, one of, I think that would have been, not necessarily the best, but one of the most memorable Premier League goals ever um, if Foden had to put the finishing touches on that Bernardo dribble. But, um, you know, because he, he can get a bit annoyed with himself when he misses chances. But obviously when the time came at 1-0 down in the second half, he absolutely buried the chance he did get. Um and yeah, just just keeps doing what he needs to do, and he is phenomenal, really. All the all the kind of strength and conditioning work he's done, and the tactical work that he's done at City over the last three or four years to add to that natural ability he's got. It's just like, paying off, is, isn't it? He is yeah. a fri- he is a frightening player. There's there's a phrase of yours, Sam, that I saw you tweet in one of the Champions League games last season. I've no idea which one it was. I've forgotten. Uh, but Foden versus Milner reminded me of it um, because the way he played, there was some absolute toast going on down that left hand oh, side. Toast yeah. Going on. yeah, well, I actually thought Milner would be all right. People were talking about before the game. They were like, "Oh, is that something City can exploit?" And you know, is he going to be a weakness compared to Alexander Arnold? I was like, he probably he could sit back a bit deeper, not leave as much space behind him, and you know, he'd probably be more solid and make Liverpool harder to break down, but that was completely wrong, wasn't it? Like that, there was some absolute toast going on, and the way that City worked to the way they actually did exploit that with Bernardo and Cancelo in particular. That I mean, I wrote an article about it um, about Bernardo, but the way that 
those two under the most pressure from like Henderson and Jota and whoever, they would just hold on to the ball, hold on to the ball, hold on to the ball. It's the last minute, and then flick it to the other one, and then the other one would wait and flick it away, and they'd get it to Rodri, or they'd get it to De Bruyne, and the pitch would open up. They could get it in behind Milner. It was so good, and yeah, Milner he had a, a shocker of a game, didn't he? Um, and yeah, should have been sent off. Yeah, um, John. We're talking about that again. Yeah, we, we always it always comes back round to that somehow. Um, John, the finish from from Foden was excellent, um, and uh, somebody on Twitter alerted me to this that I, I didn't realise, and I checked in with Duncan Alexander at Opta. Um, it's Foden and Lacazette have scored the most goals past Allison in the Premier League. They've both got three. Um, Foden's got a bit of a knack of scoring against. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, let's not do that. Um, Foden's got a bit of a knack of uh, of doing well on the big stage, hasn't he? Yeah, um, I mean, he's just completely fearless. And the thing I like about him this season, well, and sort of towards the end of last season, is that he he no longer sort of appears to be, you know, like the city fan who's got a load of lots of promise or. You know, he's just very much a senior figure now. Um, he, he looks like he belongs, and also someone that Pep completely trusts in terms of he will play him in any position because he knows that Foden will do a job. I think. I think there's been a in the past. You know, I think the long term future for Foden is as maybe as a number ten uh, or a number eight, and I think that Guardiola sort of sees that role as you know, it's so important. Um, but in terms of you can't give the ball away in that position. It's not just about creating. It's about it's about what you do with the ball. You know, it all has to be for a purpose, and and you need a lot of maturity for that role. And I think now that Phil just looks so comfortable, so so relaxed, so settled in the in the first team, completely belongs. Is is now becoming almost a you know a leader. Give me the ball, um, and he knows exactly what he needs to do with it, what what he wants to do with it, um, and nothing's done by chance. It's yeah. all part of the master plan, and he just fits perfectly, and it's and it's just brilliant to watch. Yeah, Sam mentioned the um, almost assist from from Bernardo. There was another one though, wasn't there, John? From from Edison, where that, I mean, he just he, Edison just went, hey, I've run on to the end of this, and <laughs> like I, I, honestly, if if one of those had gone in, the fact that there was two of them in the same game, if if just one of them had gone in, we'd be talking about that, the ball that was or, or the the build up to it for forever. I thought the Bernardo one wasn't as. I don't, it reminded me a bit of when <laughs> I've done those sort of dribbles where you keep stumbling through Fuck and off. somehow you've still got the ball. <laughs> well, you know when you, you don't really know what you're doing and somehow John, the ball's John, still at your feet. <laughs> John, we've we've both played with you, mate. We've both seen you play. Not 20 years ago, to be fair. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm not comparing myself to Bernardo, but I'm not sure he knew exactly what he was doing there. He just seemed to just keep going and somehow had the ball at his feet. I'm not, I, I'm not convinced it was that. <laughs> Am I being too harsh there? <laughs> no, I mean, I think what he did all game was just hold on to it, hold on to it, hold on to it. Like, in, not even when he wasn't passing to Cancelo or somebody else, he was just keeping hold of the ball and attracting in pressure and then laying it off. But yeah, maybe, you know, maybe it was, okay, I'm going to turn around. Oh, is there a pass? No, there isn't. I'll go this way. Okay, there's no pass. And maybe, maybe he did keep going. But I was just laughing because I know how much City fans love that dribble and, you know, City things in general. So to, to suggest it's not, 
as as golden as it looked is just funny because <laughs> I mean, uh, I just, uh, I'm so sensitive to the reactions of, of listeners now. It's not just that. I'm never going to say something like that. It's not just that though, Sam. I, I I was I was watching on Sky Go at home, uh, so I was I was a, I was like thirty seconds a minute behind what what you were seeing in the stadium, and everybody on my timeline was just tweeting Bernardo Silva exclamation mark Bernardo 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 Silva. Oh, do you think he was going to score? And so I thought I thought a goal was coming, so I was a little bit disappointed that a goal didn't come. But then I saw what happened, and I kind of thought. Well, you know what? I'll take that. That was quite. That was quite good. And John's here going. Nah, it wasn't all that. Wasn't all that. <laughs> I mean, to balance it, I will balance it out and say he was, he was absolutely phenomenal throughout yeah. the game. I will balance um, it out by saying Salah's goal was really good. Yeah, too too, li- too little, too late, John. Too little, too late. <laughs> I, I said yeah. what a goal though on Twitter for Salah's goal, and I saw the replies a couple of days later. It was like show extra replies. I was like, here we go. And one bloke, one bloke just said fuck off, and I clicked his, I clicked on his account. And he tweeted me before something fine, and then he know and he wasn't following me, and I was like, "Did he unfollow me?" Because I said Salah scored a good goal, quite quite possibly. Um, <laughs> it was yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, this all started. Any, uh, this all started anyway from uh, Edison's assist, or almost assist, John. That was a good. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't claim to have ever done that. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's just he's just ridiculous, isn't he? Um, yeah, but you know, I, I just. Just something that any any keep in the world can can do that, and it's just. I think we could we can reflect on his missed punch, which was nearly sort of costly. But you, you just what he brings with those sort of passes is just ridiculous. And uh, yeah, if you know if, if a team is going to press against City, to have the keeper who's so relaxed in front of the cop to receive those balls. I mean, there was one. Was it Diaz nearly rolled it into his oh, own net? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a horrible pass that would. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would have made a, I, I would have kicked that in my own goal. I mean, I'd have made a right mess of that. And he just doesn't bother. He just just gets on with it. He's, he's just like, well, oh, well, that was a crap pass, wasn't it? Thanks for that. Oh, don't worry, I'll sort it out. He, he's so, he's just incredible. Yeah, we've the three of us. Um, this this sounds like I'm just being a right humble brag wanker now. Um, but obviously, the three of us at the end of uh, the eighteen nineteen season, we played on the Etihad, and I had to take goal kicks from the six yard box. And I remember popping the ball down and looking up and thinking, "God, that halfway line's a long way away," and <laughs> yeah. just hit, hitting it as hard as I could, and it kind of like dropped midway into our own half. And then I watch Edison like with a standing start, just drop it on the opposition penalty spot, and just think like. I, I mean, I know I'm not doing strength and conditioning work in the gym every day like he is, but I just thought, fuck me. I, 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 how, I can't comprehend of how somebody can do that. You know, it's, it's just insane. He's doing this while he's being pressed. He's got his eyes open for short passes, long passes. He's got a striker bearing on, down on him for five yards. And from his periphery vision, he's watching Jesus sprinting, you know, making that run inside the fullback, Foden on the other side. He's, 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 he's got all this going on and it's just so relaxed. It's just Yeah, it's just phenomenal. They know all the movements, don't they? The Foden one was like the Gundogan one against Spurs. Wasn't yeah. It? They and and in fact, did he pick up? Was it Zinchenko for the PSG game when Mario yeah. scored at the back post? Like it's just got that down to a T. But also not even the long range ones that go into the other team's half. Like there was one just in the first half, probably about seven minutes in, when he dropped it, probably about. 20 yards in from the halfway line inside his half just to probably Cancelo when like Henderson I think it was is just stretching everything he can and he just goes about six inches over his head and drops exactly where it should to Cancelo <laughs> he does that so yeah. often they they are beautiful 
Yeah, I I just can't comprehend of how he does it. It's uh, it's insane. Um, now, Sam, me and you, we talked uh, a bit on Wire Whistles recently about Bernardo Silva. Uh, John, obviously, not that impressed with, uh, with his running. <laughs> um, uh, but th- the thing is, with with Bernardo this season, especially, isn't he? He's proof of the whole Guardiola no bad faces thing. He wants to leave. He's he's it's been very clear he wants to leave. Guardiola said he wants to leave, and then he puts in a display like that at the weekend. Yeah, well, it was the same last year, wasn't it? But nobody knew. Well, on the outside, we didn't know. And that's why Guardiola was quite happy if he'd have stayed in the summer when it looked like he was going to go or Guardiola even wanted him to stay because he was like, well, ultimately, you know, he'll, he'll he'll do everything that I need him to do anyway. So, yeah, he did it last summer. It's so the last season, sorry, so it should be no surprise that he's doing it again. Um, when it was decided or kind of the outcome was known that he wasn't going to be able to go, they had a meeting and Guardiola gave him a hug and said, look, you know, we, we need you. You know, we need you to to be that player for us and, you know, explain the situation and and that was it. So he, he knows how valuable Bernardo is and that's because, yeah, Bernardo is always going to, he's always going to give 100%, you know, no matter the situation. And I've said it before, but that's not a guarantee. You know, you, you would think, or it's easy to think, Oh yeah, footballers should always give 100%. Or if I was playing for City, you know, I'd all, you know, I'd always want to do this and that. But you know, there's other people in the same dressing room who who aren't happy or do want to leave or did want to leave or weren't getting the minutes they wanted to. And their you know, their attitude to training and matches is completely different. So yeah. you got to kind you got to highlight that just to to highlight how good Bernardo is really, and he's he's good in every aspect, isn't he? On and off the pitch. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know. In fairness, that there's no deal agreed for Bernardo, and he and he isn't leaving as, as or anything like that. But it's just like if you ever work your notice period, like it, it's really easy to switch off when you're in your notice period, oh, yeah. and it's like it's the same sort of thing. He, he he's he's not happy and doesn't want to be there. But then when as soon as the whistle goes, it's it's work hard and he works hard for the team. And Johnny saves his best for Liverpool because you think of uh, January 2019 when. Uh, he just ran and ran and ran for the entire game, and I think he broke a Premier League record for the for the amount of pressing that he did. Uh, then there was the guard of honour, where he seemed to upset the entirety of Merseyside, um, and then last Saturday as well. Yeah, um, that that one that January two thousand nineteen was just an absolutely awesome display. Um, it was one of those where you think, right, you know, he's he's going to have to come out, come off after sixty five minutes, something like that. He's just done too much. And he just kept going and going and going and going, and yeah, I think I think we're starting to see the, the a, a season similar to the hundred point season. That just the commitment and the and he's got the confidence back. I think you know he does go up and down a little bit in terms of performances, and there's a couple of couple of times where you watch him and he's perhaps not perhaps not on it as much as other other times. Whereas when he's absolutely flying like this, he's one of the best players in the Premier League. Yeah, um, we've touched on the defence already. Uh, we've touched on Edison already and his, his uh, kind of cool commanding performance. Um, Sam, when he made that one mistake at the end, uh, Rodri almost, he, he almost highlighted how good he's been over the last three away games just by popping up at the right place at the right time with one of the most extraordinary blocks that I've ever seen. Yeah, um, it was a whirlwind by that stage. I didn't realise how late in the game it was until I saw it later that night. In fact, I saw these the screenshot of basically Fabinho with an open goal and the clock that was like 86, whatever. I was like, bloody hell, that was late. Um, and yeah, it was. Um, that was kind of being in the right place at the right time. And it's a bit like a bit like how we talk about number nines being in the right place at the right time and having that sense when we talk about it with Ferran Torres to an extent. Um, and also I've said in the past how 
people say De Bruyne sees passes that aren't there. Like, I've always been convinced that Fernandinho sees interceptions that aren't there. Like he just knows where to be. And there was an element of that in in what Rodri did the other day. I mean, he was probably just in, in the place he was supposed to be for a set piece. But and yeah, then we acted, you know, but had, still, yeah. Well, I mean, had Fabinho scored that, for, you know, for all the fact that I talked about um, you know, great performance and okay, they drew, but it was brilliant and they were brilliant against PSG even though they lost. Like if he'd scored that, it would have been different and I'd have probably been saying they just need somebody who can score. Would have, I would have been talking much more about strikers and and people finishing their chances and all this kind of stuff. So it really it really was important. Um, and yeah, the wider point being over these three games, it was really good and I think that started after about two minutes when he, he, he chased back against Kante who was breaking and shrugged him off the ball and turned around and brought it forward for City again. And I remember making a note of that. And then he did it again a few minutes later. And you think, oh, this is good. This is interesting. And he's basically kept it up the whole time. You know, he, I think he did that against Neymar or Mbappe, possibly both. Um, those kind of recovery tackles, which he's not always been able to do, he's, he suddenly started um, doing them. And, you know, while the, you know, the more in- intricate details of his positional game and, his passing ability and the closing off spaces is probably harder for your average football fan to spot. And I include myself in that, you know, it's, it's much easier for us to go, Oh, he's making tackles and he's stopping the team from playing. And he was probably always doing the stuff that Guardiola wanted him to, but he was really struggling for various reasons because of his own limitations at the time, which have improved. And also because of city's limitations as a team with their pressing and organization, he wasn't stopping those counter attacks and it was easier for us all to look at him and go, I'm not sure about this guy. For various reasons, it's all come together, and he is—he is looking really good now. And if he can carry that on, like I say, if City can keep that kind of approach in the in the lesser games, then they're looking very good, and and you know, Roger will be a big part of that. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team. You won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. John, we, we, we touched earlier on, or Sam touched earlier on, about the um, passing between Cancelo and uh, Bernardo. Laporte also was pretty good at, at soaking up pressure. There was a pass in the first half where, if you meant it, it's one of the best passes I've ever seen under pressure, uh, where he just played it through about three players into, I think it was into Rodri to turn or into De Bruyne to turn. Um, but looking at Laporte and Cancelo, could they have done better for, for Liverpool's two goals? Um, I thought I thought Cancelo had a, a really good game, but then you, the two goals came down his side, and particularly the first one, he, he got booked, and that was a bit of a weak challenge on Salah. He was one of those sort of back trying to tackle behind his legs. He should, he should have no, just kicked him sense, over, shouldn't he? Because as we know, on that <laughs> flank, if you're on a yellow card, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so I and the thing with Cancelo is that you know if you're watching only watching the highlights, he he doesn't come out of that game looking well. Whereas I thought, you know, Salah only did two things. They just happened to both be fantastic. Um, and in terms of the second goal, it's one of those where you can you watch the replays and you can say, well, yeah, the defenders could have done this or could have done that. Um, but maybe it's just just a, a really brilliant goal. 
Laporte, Laporte, in fairness to him for the for the second goal, he 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 stops Salah shooting on his left foot. You, Salah wants to shoot on his left foot there. It just so happens that on his right foot, he's belted it past Edison. Yeah, the only I mean, thing I don't I, know if he I, stopped him either. I think Salah probably knew what he was doing. I guess. Hmm. The, only, the only thing I don't like is Laporte sometimes turns his back and uh, he takes his eye off the ball, and it gives someone like Salah a split second to just take advantage of that. On, on both both goals, he hasn't got. A, he hasn't got a view of the ball as, a, as it goes through to, to Mane. And as Salah does that trick, but yeah, he was just the second one particularly was just a fantastic goal, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, let's finish the first part of the show with uh, a quick word on Kevin De Bruyne because, Sammy, I think it's probably fair to say that it wasn't his best game. Um, and yet he still had quite a huge impact. The, the ball through to Foden to set up the attack for the second equaliser was pretty good. And then he scored the equaliser as well. Yeah, um, again, I suppose what John was saying about if you just watch the highlights, it wouldn't look good for Cancelo. It would probably look a lot better for De Bruyne, but it was bad. And you know, I sat next to John in the stadium, and I think I said, if any other player than De Bruyne would have come off by now if they were if they were playing this poorly. But I was thinking part of that is because it is De Bruyne, and I suppose you keep him in for the potential for him to do something magic. And he didn't do something magic in the end. It was deflected. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, he isn't. He isn't playing especially well. And okay, there were big contributions for the goals, but um, yeah, the overall performance wasn't great. But if we're going to take that on even further, I wouldn't be too worried. I wouldn't be saying about um, any kind of decline as a player or anything like that. Obviously, he's given an interview this week and said if he'd known um, what would have happened from taking that painkiller injection for Belgium at the Euros, he wouldn't have done it because it's given him real problems. Um, we've talked on the other podcast about hangover from the Euros with the England players. Um, there's definitely that case with De Bruyne because of the ankles and possibly, you know, just the, he went from the Champions League final injury into the Euros and came out with another injury. Um, and, you know, we always know it takes him a few games, often takes him a few games to get back into his stride. Remember when he came back from that West Ham game and he was awful <laughs> for about 20 minutes, but then he put that ball on, was it Diaz's head? Diaz's yeah, head, yeah. Diaz. It was phenomenal with his left foot. So that's why Guardiola would have left him on Anfield. Um, and yeah, I think he's probably slowly but surely getting there. But you've got that interesting thing, really, with the team where you could play a City team with without De Bruyne and without Cancelo, and they'd probably control it forever. And you'd think they'd probably have enough. They'd probably still create plenty of chances and have a decent chance of scoring. But then if you put De Bruyne and Cancelo in, there's just an extra cutting edge, isn't there? Where you've got, they're always trying to play balls in behind you and they're always trying to probe for things. It's just interesting how the team dynamic changes um, without those two, which is kind of what we saw last year in the Champions League when Guardiola was making changes and it was only really a left back in the Dortmund games and obviously he had the decision to make when De Bruyne didn't play and people were saying they were more solid with Gundogan and Bernardo. So it is interesting how that little team dynamic works, but it also goes to show how many options they've got. Yeah, John. I was going to say the final word on on De Bruyne is probably that he looks like he's struggling from his injury. And as as Sam said, he's uh, he gave that interview this week where he he said he he wouldn't have done it had he had he known the uh, the effect of the painkiller injection. So that there's that. Um, do you also wonder that he's he's maybe not as relaxed as he would be normally because he feels like he's feeling it. He's feeling the pressure to perform a little bit. No, I don't think he. I don't think he'll feel the pressure because he's just been there and done it. I, I, it was perhaps a surprise to see him play in all three games, start all three games, and particularly after playing in the uh, in the League Cup and then m- having missed the game against Southampton. Uh, he's, you know, he, he obviously missed what the first six games of the season was it? I think he missed, and then so it was perhaps a surprise that he played all three and maybe 
just you know it's difficult to have an impact in every game isn't it uh, but yeah I don't think we can worry too much about De Bruyne he's, he's, he's just does it every season so yeah I think it, I think it is a hangover from the Euros still getting a little bit of his sharpness back and hopefully he'll sit out some of Belgium's um, I don't know who Belgium are playing but hopefully it's San Marino or something that maybe you can see them out I think they got France I saw <laughs> right. a, a cover okay. of Keep saying they got France so good, yeah, good. he'll be playing 90 minutes excellent good what we want to hear Right. Uh, yes. Well. Um. I, okay. I, I hope you. T- I hope you two are ready for this. This is uh, possibly the biggest handbrake turn I've ever done on this podcast. But here we go. <clears throat> right. Let's go. Uh, this week, the latest 007 film, No Time to Die, finally hit the cinemas 14 months after its original planned release. There are plenty of links between City and Bond, no more so than former James Bond actor Timothy Dalton being a fan of the club. And in one of the most tenuous Blue Moon podcast links ever, we've decided to use this as an opportunity to look back at what happened in the early 1980s at Main Road. What's that got to do with 007? Here's Sam Roscoe to explain more. It was October 1980. Moonraker had been the 007 film most recently on the big screen, having hit cinemas the year before, while the year after, Roger Moore would return in For Your Eyes Only. In Manchester, City had their eyes on a bond of their own, after the 1980-81 season had got off to a poor start. To put it in a nutshell, I've seen uh, Tony and uh, Malcolm about an hour and a half ago. Uh, We talked about the club's position and I put it to them, asked them to, if they'd like to, uh, I don't think likes the word, but if they'd resign from the position of manager and coach, and that's what they've done. That was the chairman of the time, Peter Swales. The clips from this feature have come from the 1981 Granada Fly on the Wall documentary called City. It's on YouTube and well worth checking out. It follows what happened behind the scenes at Main Road at the end of Malcolm Allison's second stint as manager. He, along with coach Tony Buck, were under pressure with the club yet to win after 10 first division games. Following a 1-0 loss away to Leeds, the chairman decided to make a change. The situation is that uh, I've asked Tony to uh, hang on for the West Brom game and he'll be looking after that with, with Ken Barnes on Saturday. To be fair to the chairman, Mark and myself always knew where we stood. Alison obviously wasn't pleased with the decision. I would have gone to the end of this season. But he wouldn't have had to tell me. I'd have told him. If I couldn't see any light and I couldn't see any progress and I couldn't see that I was getting anywhere, yeah, I'd have told him. I'd have said, look, I'm, I'm not going to make it, I'm not doing it. But I know that I was on the right lines. I know that it was going to happen. And that's what's hurting me. There was one candidate that Swales wanted to replace Alison at Main Road. He approached Norwich, who asked for £200,000 in compensation if their manager, who wanted the city job, were to swap Carrow Road for the North West. His name was Bond, John Bond. My question has always been to you, who is the who is the man, the genius, who's the god that can can could take over uh, Malcolm's role here? One of the qualities of a manager, apart from knowledge of football and the ability to coach, is man management, and perhaps I should say boy boy management. John Bond may indeed be the man we want. I'm just raising the point. 
that we ought to know a little bit more about his ability and what his attitude is, and that can only come out in interview. That was discussions had by City's board, ahead of meeting Bond. The cameras were present for his interview too. If I come here and if I sign on for this as manager of this football club, I know it's a mammoth task and I know the needs of you gents around this table and I also know the needs of the supporters who come and pay the monies to watch the team week in and week out. Because um, it's not Norwich City like, you know, we're, I think we're in the big time. I think you're in the big time, that's why I want to be manager of the place and uh, without any conceit, I don't think you'd have asked me up here today if I hadn't have got some um, ability and I think I have the ability to lift your side and give it this certain amount of confidence and, uh, and maybe a little bit more determination to, to go on and win a few games. After the interview, Bond was offered the job and Swales talked Norwich down to a hundred grand in compensation. Bond also called the players together for a team meeting. While you're here, I would like to think you and I will know each other. I'll know you as the players and you'll know me as boss. I don't say that for any other reason for me to be the boss because I want to be out there and you to be down there. But I think it's absolutely right because I think um, that shows a mark of respect. I think that when we're in hotels and places like that, there'll be a few Johns about, and that's my name, John. And if you get in a hotel and shout out John, and I might think that's me, and I don't think that's right. So from now on in, when we're together, you know me as boss. He also laid out the new ground rules. We have little forms of discipline if, if, if people misbehave and do things wrong. For instance, if you're late in training, you get fined. If you're late for the coach, you get fined. On match days, everybody, just everybody who comes to Carrow uh, sorry about that, Main Road, for a first team match will wear a collar and tie and a jacket, a coat or top. You don't wear pullovers, you wear a collar and tie and you wear a, either a jacket or a, or a leather jacket. Bond also touched on his relationship with the previous manager. I'm not here to slag off Malcolm Allison. Whatever you thought about Malcolm Allison, I thought twice as much. I played with him for an awful long while. He was my best friend, still is my best friend, at West Ham for the years that we played together up there. So, as far as I'm concerned, he did a, a, a marvellous job and I think, and I'm conceited enough to think, and that's why I'm in management, I'm just conceited enough to think that we can do better than what we've done. Under Bond, City went on to win 10 of their next 16 Division 1 games. The always outspoken Malcolm Allison said the new boss had inherited his team and they were bound to come good. Bond obviously didn't agree. As fate would have it, the two men were drawn together in the FA Cup Allison, now managing Crystal Palace for a second time, was coming back to Main Road in the third round. It's very strange when I was coming to the ground. I had no feelings about the game. I just had a sense of, of pleasure about it. Uh, I was going to enjoy it, but I need to win badly. City won 4-0 and went all the way to the FA Cup final that season, eventually losing to Spurs in a replay. After the third round match, Bond, Allison and Swales spoke together in front of the cameras. I think if you could get somebody who was big enough to control him and run him, you could be really, really successful. He has the capacity and the ability to make players better. I'll always, I'll always like the fella. I'll always love the fella. He's, he's a magic, he's a magic, magic fella. I found that fella to control me. That's me. 
<laughs> I just happened to think that I could work with him. That's a that's an impossible situation. I mean, having seen them both, it wouldn't. There's no way that would work. Absolutely not at all. I'd give that less chance than Abbott and Costello running a football club. Bond remained at City until his resignation in February 1983, with the club in mid-table. His assistant, John Benson, got the job full-time, and City ended up in freefall, eventually being relegated on the final day of the 1982-83 season. There's just no time to die. Hi there, this is Joe Royal speaking. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast, and carry on doing so. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Sam Roscoe there looking at uh, John Bond's time at City. Um, before we move on, knowing that that was coming, uh, we asked Twitter this week which City players, past or present, you, know, you thought would make a good Bond and a good Bond villain. Um, I'm just going to run through a few of these now because uh, some of them made me laugh. Gaz Brady just sent us a gif of uh, Alexander Kolarov. I assume that he's going to be a, a Bond villain. Um, Lap 3 says, uh, not a player but for villain, and then attached uh, an image of Peter Swales. Um, John, you 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 were you were seeing a lot of City during the Swales era. Can you imagine a Bond villain that has that has lit this laugh <laughs> and that haircut? As well. And that haircut is that a Bond villain? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's going to work. Um, it's more Austin Powers, I think. That one. Yeah, uh, Kyle said uh, Vincent Company equals James Bond. Uh, Edo Lachlan said uh, Zabaleta for Bond, Fernandinho for Bond villain. I always thought Sam Zabaleta would make a good Bond villain in the Bald era. Yeah, Old era Zabaletta, yeah. He's, like, he's yeah, sort especially of... with that birthmark he's got as well. Yeah. yeah you could spin a storyline around that. Yeah. Uh, CJ Kohick says Scott Carson for both. Um, Jacob says <laughs> got to be Javi Garcia as uh, as Bond. Uh, Matt Jones says Keith Curl as Bond, smooth as you like. Villain Ike Immel looked a bit like a Bond villain, didn't he? Certainly dodge shots uh, of any kind with consummate ease. Um, Colin Scott said Bond is uh, Ruben Diaz. Villain is Michel Vonk. Um, Diaz, I can see. Diaz would be the sort of Bond that comes out of the sea still wearing the captain's armband because he's done that at the end of every game recently, hasn't he? Just, just gone to the fans, thrown his shirt in and he's walking off with the captain's armband. It certainly is an image. Um, yeah. Cl- yeah, Cliff Larson says Bond is uh, Kevin De Bruyne the villain is Balotelli. John, Bond villain Balotelli, that would be a chaotic plot, wouldn't it? I don't, I don't, see, I don't, I don't see that. Uh, Ross Pryor says, uh, villains Nigel de Jong. Uh, Mark o- Oxley says, uh, Edison as Bond villain, Ruben Diaz as Bond. Edison as the villain, Sam, is uh, like, it, it just, it, it, everything would, would run smoothly, wouldn't it? He's just so calm. Well, especially with that big grill, it's, a, it's quite Jaws-like, isn't it? Yeah. When, yeah. He, had, when he had that in his mouth. Um, oh, you're right, actually, yeah. or whatever. You're right, actually. Yeah. I, I tweeted, I, I must have tweeted about, uh, it must be about 18 months ago that I do see the similarities between uh, him and Richard Keel. yeah. And he's a genuine maniac. Yeah. Like, He's got cold blood. <laughs> he's he's some kind of lizard human. So yeah, it, it would it would work for sure. And if not if not James Bond, then Doctor Who. Yeah, uh, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, the final word uh, for this one is going to uh, the Bertieful South on Twitter, who still has the best Twitter name that I've uh, that I've seen. Um, because John, brace yourself for this, Scaramangala. Oh dear, oh dear, very good, very good. I thought it was going to. I thought Nolito would have been a good shout for a Bond villain. Do you reckon? Yeah, because just, just goes around just, headbutting people. Yeah, he's, he was a bit of a loose cannon, and I mean, he's he looks kind of rough and scarred and all that kind of stuff. So, good luck to him. Yeah, any anything to throw in, John? Or uh, I, I'll just have we as this got on too long. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the only thing on a Bond related theme, um, which I've got a question for you. 
Quiz question on James Bond. Do you, oh do you, God, know you James don't do Bond? this. You don't do this to me. I do this to you guys. You don't do this to me. What's this? Which which, which Bond girl same, shares a surname with a current City player? Oh, what? Yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, well, it's Thunderball, which obviously is probably the worst Bond film. It's a terrible say. film. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a character called Mademoiselle Laporte. Oh, I didn't know that. That's, that's... <laughs> Excellent. So somebody's done the research and stitched me right up. So, uh, yeah, here we are. Let's move on. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash aware. Sticking with the Bond theme, though, while John Bond was manager at Main Road, one of the signings he made was someone he had coached while manager of Norwich and in charge of Bournemouth. It was his own son, Kevin. I've been speaking to him to find out more about that move from Carrow Road to City, starting with how it happened. My father had left, um, I think, sometime before Christmas the previous year. Uh, he'd, le- he'd left um, Manchester. He'd left Norwich City as manager, and obviously had taken the position up at, uh, at Main Road. And I, I, I know he was quite keen to take me with him at some stage if he could. Um, and obviously, as soon as there was the possibility of me um, moving to Manchester City, um, you know, I, I couldn't wait for that to happen. It got a little political because. Um, uh, Manchester City had signed Kevin Reeves at some stage previous to that for a lot of money and um, and they didn't want a sort of exodus of players uh, and I think in the years prior to that when my father joined Norwich City from Bournemouth he brought about six players from Bournemouth um, with him uh, who, who all went on to do wonderful things I might say at, uh, at Norwich City so maybe they were had that in mind and thinking what we're going to have is an exodus of, um, of players from Carrow Road up to, up to Main Road. And they didn't really want that to happen. I, I suppose there was also an element of, um, of, you know, my sort of family situation and, and they did appreciate it might be difficult for me to stay with a new manager. It might be difficult for me to stay at Norwich City, especially as I, as I wanted to leave. Um, and purely by coincidence, a really good friend of mine, John Ryan, who went on to play for Man City as well, I played with him at Norwich. He'd had a couple of seasons out at uh, Seattle Sounders. Uh, and I used to go out there, I'm godfather to his daughter, and I'm, I used to go out there and see him at the end of the season and, and got to know the players and got to know Alan Hinton, who was the manager. And, I, and in fact, he used to go and watch him train and joined in a little bit in the closed season. So um, there... An opportunity came because I knew the people there. An opportunity came, so why don't you have a season at Seattle um, and and then at the end of the season at Seattle, go back to Main Road and sort of so got round the, the, the Carrow Road to Main Road moved by virtue of the fact that I sort of went via Seattle, um, knowing full well that, that my move back to Main Road was already cemented in place. Um, and that was, in fact, how it happened. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested in um, the move because obviously, um, like you say about your dad moving from from Norwich to uh, to, to to Manchester City, um, was there much criticism that you had to overcome at the time because it was your dad that was City manager? Yeah, in my <clears throat> in my early days at uh, Norwich City, it was difficult for me. I, I was a real talk. I was a real, real late developer. I mean, properly a late developer. I was, you know. By comparison, I was tiny as a, we used to do our apprenticeships in them days at 15, you could leave school at 15. And I was eight, when I was 17, 18, I was still tiny, you know, really properly uh, hadn't developed at all. And, and I think everyone really, even people very close to my father thought it was going to be difficult for me to make the grade. My father, although he, he gave me an opportunity that other people would have definitely not given me that, that is for sure. Um, it, it just wasn't blind faith. He genuinely thought he saw something in me. I had one or two attributes that he thought. And once I grew and developed, he hoped that I would, you know, become a player and, and gave me the opportunity for which I will be eternally grateful. And in the end, I did, you know, grow to where I am and what I was at six foot two. And whatever. so I did grow, but I was a real late developer. And it was only when I started to grow that, um, I used to be able to hold my own on a on a football pitch because in the in the early years I, I couldn't it was too much for me so it was difficult in the early years but then you know then I had a good couple of seasons from you know in at Norwich and scored a few goals and you know played for the B team of England and what have you and so you know I I was able to sort of stand on my own two feet then and then the people at Norwich were fantastic with me and and so that that was great in the end but it did take its time and and I suppose I had to get over the same barrier when I initially went to Main Road I, I remember you know Nick, Nicky Reed who was fantastic at Man City in them days when I joined the club Nick, Nicky actually went out to America but he only went for a season he went you know same sort of thing as I did he went out for a season and he was a real fan's favourite at Main Road. And I, I think the supporters thought that I was coming in to take Nicky's place, which in fact wasn't the case. Um, and it was really difficult for me in the early days at Main Road. Very difficult for me in the early days. Um, but, but in the end, uh, that they were thankfully great uh, with me or to me in the end as well. So um, I've got nothing but fond memories of Man City. Yeah, what's it like, um, like actually playing under your dad's management? Because that's not something that that many pros kind of have to do. No, it, it, you know, it, he was. I mean, he, he was he was great for me in terms of giving me opportunities that uh, uh, other people wouldn't have given me. But he he was also my harshest critic. So you know, in my younger years, when I broken into the side at, at Norwich, for instance, I was living at home with my mum and dad still. And if we'd lost on Saturday, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be going home until I knew he was fast asleep in bed. I wouldn't be going home because I'd, I'd, you know, I'd get it. And he, he, you know, he was not frightened to tell me um, whatever it was he thought that I needed to be told. So he was. He could be. He could be quite difficult on 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 me. And I think the other players definitely knew that there was certainly no favouritism. You know, if if they got it, I certainly got it, and some. So there was ne never any sort of favouritism. But, you know, he, by the same token, he gave me an opportunity that other people wouldn't have given me. So, um, you know, I need to be very, very thankful. I think 
in the early years, I was maybe also a little bit naive when I was young that the, the criticism and the accusations that people were making maybe went over the top of my head. I didn't really realise that in hindsight that was probably a good thing because, you know, had I really taken all of that to heart, I, you know, there might have been spells where I'd have just called it a day, but um, it, seemed, it seemed to pass me by, so I, I just got on with it. Yeah, I mean the, the 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 irony was as well at that time, uh, just after your dad had moved to uh, to Main Road, while you were still at Norwich, uh, City and Norwich drew each other in the cup. Um, what was that like? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they they smashed us up, didn't they? Five or six, I think it was, wasn't it? They beat us, and and that was on their way to the 80, 81 cup eighty one cup final. Yeah, what's uh, I mean the 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 video at the end of the uh, of that game shows uh, your dad jumping down to the tunnel. Was it is it right that he was coming to to, to kind of kind of offer you commiserations? Yeah, yeah it was. It, you know, he he knew that was a difficult situation for me as well. As I knew it, uh, you know, I, professionally you want to win, and I, I understand that. But it was it was difficult, and at the end of the day, you know, I'm I'm his son, and they're just beating us up properly, and he. He wanted to, and, act, and actually, I do remember that he sort of jumped down from the director's box and, and actually quite badly hurt his back, uh, to be honest. But um, yeah, he did. He did. He was coming down to, I suppose, console his son in that instance more than more than the football element. Yeah. Um, just talking about your your move to City now. I mean, uh, your first game was a, a three nil defeat at, uh, at Birmingham. Um, how was that? I mean, obviously, good good to be at City, but then a, a, a bittersweet with the with the result. To be honest, I don't I don't remember I don't remember a great deal about that. I, not that that particular game. I do, I do remember. I think the first game of that season, I believe, would might have been away at Stoke City, if I remember right. Um, we had Trevor Francis, who who was there. And uh, I think we, we might beat Stoke, if my, if my memory serves me correct. And, and I remember thinking, wow, I've come to a good team here. You know, a lot of really good players. That, that was probably my first, um, my first thoughts about it. You know, obviously a massive football club and Trevor Francis, who was, a, you know, a big, big star in them days. And, you know, the Tommy Hutchinsons of this world, you come into a big football club with big players, uh, really, really, really good players. That was pr- probably my sort of first instinct to the club. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of that season, how, how was it settling in? What, what, what was it like at Main Road at that time? Yeah, it was, uh, you see, I, I think the previous year, um, they'd, they'd had, I think after my father taken over, they'd had a really good run in the league. If I, if I remember correctly, they had a really good run in the league after, Malcolm Allison had departed. My father come in. It sort of stabilised the situation on, from a league perspective. Went on a really good league cup run, I believe. That ultimately, let me think. I think ultimately ended in in a two leg defeat by the odd goal to Liverpool in the semi final, if I think correctly. And I, I did see one of the because I obviously was in America. I'd seen one of the games where they. I thought they were really unlucky. It might have been the home game. Um, and then, and then, obviously, they went on to 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 play in the in, in the cup final at uh, at Wembley against Spurs, which um, w- would ultimately be the biggest disappointment professionally in my father's life. And to be honest with you, I, I, I don't, in a funny sort of way, I don't ever think he got over that. I think it was so disappointing for him um, that I don't ever think he ever sort of really recovered from that. And it and it then it all became very. Hard. I mean, the, the following the following season we we started really well, um, I believe, 
and if again, if my memory serves me correct, David, I think I think we beat Liverpool at Liverpool over the Christmas period, um, and we might have even gone top of the league at that stage. Um, and you know, everything was looking everything was looking rosy, and then um, and then I think ultimately we finished about twelfth, I think. Um, but the season started really well. What was it? What was it like playing at Main Road? Um, because obviously, there's there's a generation of City fans now that that don't know what Main Road was like. What was Main Road in the eighties like? It, it it was a fantastic football stadium. You know that the, there's still one or two of them around, like Leeds United and places like that, which uh, Everton, which are great football stadiums where the, you know, the, the the supporters seem to be very close to you and what have you. Main Road had its own. Um, very different in as much as the the, the the voice, the crowd that used to that used to sing and what have you like that used to be at the side of the pitch rather than what you regularly hear is which is behind the goal. The, the kip axe was at the side of the pitch, so that was very different. And the big main stand that they had there, but it was like you know I, I remember in my days at Norwich City, it was not it was not a place that you. Re- I mean, you look forward to playing in the big stadiums, but against the teams that you played against at Main Road, it was not a place you know, that you, you know, you could get hide in there if you weren't careful. So, and then, and then going to play for them at that stadium was, and and being involved in a good team and winning matches, it was a fantastic place to play. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously we, we talked earlier on about uh, the, having to overcome that, that the idea of nepotism as well. Um, you know, you spent three years at City, there was 110 appearances in there, you know, in the first division as well. You, you, by the, by this stage, had, had that criticism gone away by that point? Yeah, I think, uh, I think after, after the first season, which become, which was really difficult for me, um, uh, after the first season, and then, you know, I, I, I hope, I hope that that sort of maybe the performances, you know, I, I sort of did a little bit. Hopefully, did the talking for me, and I think it was the second year or something that we I was there. Um, I ended up getting voted the Player of the Year at Man City, so that that was something that I was, you know, really really proud of, um, having come through quite a difficult time initially. Uh, to have, I suppose, in a way, won them over um, was was something I've got to be honest. I'm very proud of. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, you were there when your dad resigned from for, from the role of manager. What how what was that like? Had he had he spoken to you beforehand about that about about that's what he was thinking about, or or did it come as a shock? No, it did come as a shock. I kn- I, I knew there was problems. I knew he was unhappy. I knew things weren't. Um, obviously, I wasn't at home then, and. I, uh, and, and he would have respected the fact that I was very much sort of a player there and it didn't, didn't want to burden me with any problems that he might have had. Um, and, to, and to be honest, I, I didn't really get any prior warning. I, I mean, I knew he was un, he would take things to heart anyway. I mean, it, um, you know, if things weren't going well on the football field, regardless of um, how secure he was in his position as manager, he, a defeat never sat well with him. Um, and I just thought that was maybe the just the period that we was going through and I, I never knew that he was contemplating resigning I, I really never yeah what what was it like after he'd after he'd stepped down well it was no, very very difficult obviously I'm just you know just a player John Benson took over uh, initially to try and stabilize the club situation and you know the bit I think there was a bit turmoil that you know whether there was financial problems at the club, and players were being players had gone, and obviously Trevor Francis had gone prior to that before we bought him, and then we had to sell him. Um, 
so it was very, it was very difficult, you know, on the field and probably off the field at, at that stage. Um, and it was a case, you know, for us, we're, we're just the players. We just try and concentrate on on winning the next game. And 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 I think, you know, pretty pretty much that's what you do do. You're you know you're you're very much focused on on yourself and and the team. Um, but it, it, you know, it was difficult. I think John took us till the end of the season, I believe. But it was, you know, and I know, you know, I know it was a difficult. I know because I knew John very well. I knew, I knew it was a very difficult situation for him, and and, and not a position in an ideal world that he would wanted want, wanted. You know, as much as it's nice to be Man City manager, it's not a position that he really one that he really relished. And I think he could have, he, you know, we would sooner done without. To be perfectly honest. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. But don't worry. It'll be over soon. That was Kevin Bond speaking to me there. And that's the end of this week's Blue Moon Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed it, then please go and give it a rating and a review wherever you can, but especially on Apple Podcasts. It's the international break now, but if you'd like a nice back catalogue of City stuff to listen to, you can sign up to our Patreon page. We've been doing these new bonus shows this season where some of our regular guests have been discussing the most important City matches that they were at. John, uh, yours was out last Monday, your uh, your five choices. How did you find doing it? Yeah, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, it's great to look back at some of the you know, early days watching City, and also the hardest thing really was choosing five matches. Um, I, you know, I could do another one easily. Do another one. I probably probably could do another two. Oh, well, I'll hold you to that, so that's all right. Um, <laughs> we've also been doing a Heaven and Hell series where we focus on good and bad games against various opposition, and we have guests from those oppositions as well. Uh, they've all been great fun, and they're all available for only £2 a month. Just take a look at patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. And as a little added bonus, you can also get this podcast each week completely ad-free if you sign up to be a Patreon backer as well. Thanks to my guests for this week's show, Goal.com's Jonathan Smith. Thanks for having me on. And the Athletic Sam Lee. Cheers, lads. Uh, don't forget you can also catch me and Sam on Why Always Us next Monday as well uh, Sam we're focusing on Raheem Sterling this week aren't we yeah we are um, the wonderful world of Raheem and all, all that entails yep so uh, go and get that on uh, when it's out on Monday we'll have another Blue Moon podcast at the end of next week as well so I'll see you the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast